Let's say you're someone who's gone to church your entire life, and this Sunday you sit through a sermon like you do every week. You nod your head in agreement, maybe sing some songs that give you a feeling of transcendence, have some cordial conversations with people after the service, and on your way home, you get flooded with doubts about whether or not anything you just did had any value. You wonder whether or not what you believe about God in this story is even real. Or let's say you're a generally non-religious person. You, You consider yourself secular. There's no God. The universe has natural causes that can explain its existence. Life is a statistical anomaly. But hey, you gotta live in it somehow, so maybe you choose to just make up a meaning for it. Maybe financial success or general health and happiness or, or whatever. Everything that's valuable is what's right in front of you. It's what is imminent. There is no transcendence. But then maybe you witness the birth of your first child or you're taken aback as you stargaze one night or perhaps you hear a song that's so beautiful that it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand tall. And suddenly you feel haunted by something beyond the imminent. Like like something calling out to you, which, which makes you think that the world isn't so easily reducible to simply matter and biology and physics. Now, both of these people feel what philosopher Charles Taylor called cross-pressure. The new narratives of Western civilization have created a meaning crisis, and the meaning-making quest calls to each of us even to those who have become so hopeless or depressed that they don't even have the strength to take the first steps. In today's episode, I wanna explore some of the factors that got us to this point, and, and maybe as we begin to understand what got us here, we can begin to figure out how to solve this meaning crisis. But here, so, you know, as people like Charles Taylor and James K. Smith, who I, I referenced quite a bit in the video I did on uh, um, Interstellar. So if you haven't checked that out, maybe go check that out on YouTube. But both Taylor, Charles Smith, and uh, not Charles Smith, Charles Taylor and James K. A. Smith uh, asked this question, how is it possible that in the year 1500 in the Western world, virtually everybody was a theist of some sort. Everybody believed in God, whether they were Christian or Jew or Muslim, everybody believed in God. And, and now we are in a relatively, when it, when, we come, when it comes to a big picture on the um, big historical picture, we've come a far way in a relatively short time. Over just really a few hundred years, uh, civilization in the West has radically shifted to the point where it's honestly hard for people to believe in the existence of God. And this secular view of the world has become, quote unquote, the the neutral standpoint that everybody is supposed to begin from. All right, so how do we get here then? Um, Let's talk about just a couple factors. First of all, we had this significant shift that happened during the Enlightenment period. 
the Enlightenment period was uh, essentially a response to much of the medieval period. During this period, there was a shift from an probably an imbalanced overemphasis on revelation. So let's take you back even maybe a little bit further um, to people like Aquinas, the great medieval theologian. And for people like Aquinas, the way that we could understand God and reality was through two pathways, if you will. There was reason and there was revelation. Reason allowed us to understand using the faculties of our intellect to understand the created world that God made and through that process to be able to discern things about the nature and character of this God. Reason was, um, and to maybe use more Protestant language here, was a, a gift of common grace. Uh, everybody had access to this. You didn't have to be a, a Christian to use general revelation, to use reason, to understand the world or to understand certain things about God. But along with reason, that wasn't the only pathway to discern things about God, about reality. You also had this other category, uh, revelation. And, and revelation simply was a, a different path for discerning things about reality and about God. This was not necessarily something that was against reason as many you know later in history um, became a, a popular perspective among Protestants and much later in history among evangelicals that reason and revelation were were somehow at odds together where revelation was just simply a different path it was it was supracognitive meaning it wasn't reducible to simply uh, cognitive uh, rational processes that there were things, about God and about reality that we could discern using other senses, if you will. Now, there's obviously, there is some caricatures of the medieval period that I think are unfair, calling it the Dark Ages, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things I think most people, when they look back uh, on the medieval period in the Western world, what they'd be able to observe is that among the disciplines of science, and science at this time was not reducible to simply uh, the, the limits that we would place on what is quote-unquote science in today's era. In the medieval period, like theology and philosophy were also considered science. And in the medieval period, we probably got to this point where theology was the queen of sciences. I mean, there was just nothing nothing someone could give themselves to that would have any higher purpose or um, you know, any more benefit than the study of theology. But one of the problems that we experience or we, 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 can, we can see in this medieval period is that operating almost in the background, the uh, assumed lens, the, the lens by which people were doing theology, there were these other philosophical presuppositions that became, again, almost synonymous with doing good theology. One of these assumed to be true philosophical constructs was Platonism. So the Greek philosopher Plato believed that the nature of reality was comprised of matter and spirit. 
but that um, matter was inferior to spirit. Now, if you know anything about church history, this also sounds a little bit familiar because the Gnostic Christians were a group of Christians so heavily influenced by um, variations of this Platonic philosophy that they they came to the conclusion that matter was evil and uh, that that matter was almost irredeemable, right? So the goal of Gnosticism was to transcend matter, to get out of the physical world into the world of spirit. And, you know, much of these um, Platonic notions that influence Gnostic thought, you know, the early church deemed as heretical. And yet, not all of it was eliminated from Christian thought, Orthodox Christian thought. Now, let's say you even just hold to this perspective, not in a full-on Gnostic sense, but in you know much more simpler Platonic sense, and you feel that matter is inferior to spirit. Well, then a logical consequence of this is that you're going to pursue studying the things of the spirit using the um, pathway of the epistemological pathway of discerning spiritual things, which is revelation, right? This is at least what people viewed at the time. Uh, downside of that, right, is if you don't give yourself to the study of matter, to the study of physical creation, because you view physical creation as inferior to the things of spirit, well, then you're going to have all sorts of problems. And I mean, real life problems, like the problems that exist in your daily experience of life, problems in the imminent, problems with a lack of understanding of how matter and how the physical world works, which leads to things like diseases that you can't find cures for because you're not able or not willing to explore the physical causes of it. So perhaps what ends up happening is that more of a spiritual or or supernatural causation is explored first before exploring using the gift of reason and again using more protestant terminology like the the, the common grace of general revelation to actually explore physical and material causation so when people today actually look back on the medieval period you, you hear People like Neil deGrasse Tyson or, um, you know, Richard Dawkins or, you know, Sam Harris talk with um, high disdain for the medieval period because of so much of the superstitious beliefs that people had about the true causation of things like sickness. You can kind of understand why. You can kind of understand and sympathize with their perspective. And it rightfully makes people afraid as they look back and they see Galileo being condemned as a heretic when they see things like the Salem witch trials, which wasn't really, you know, that wasn't in the medieval period, but they would point to that as, you know, this is 
a religious culture that uh, was still very much anti anti reason. All right. Well, when did this shift happen? You know, when do historians, as they look back, where do they where do they point to as you know the turning point in Western thought? This shift from you know the medieval period to what we would call the modern era and the shift uh, into the Enlightenment period. Well, traditionally, there are, you know, sort of two heroes in this story that people point to. One is uh, Rene Descartes, and the other is Sir Isaac Newton. And I just want to focus on Newton here for a second, because Newton is such... Descartes is a game-changer too, but Newton is such a game-changer in this shift into the Enlightenment era era and into modern scientism that uh, we need to understand a little bit about why his perspective was so significant. First of all, Newton was a theist, like, I mean, pretty much everybody was in the Western world at that time. And so to Newton, Newton's theology and Newton's understanding of God, God was a rational, pure being. God, because God, he he he, he really captured um, in many ways the, the, the best of Aquinas's understanding of knowing God through the common grace of general revelation through reason he 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 really grabbed on to that theological idea and it led him to essentially be the the founder of modern science and physics because for Aquinas not Aquinas, for Newton, the universe was orderly. It was knowable. It was rational because God was knowable and God created a universe that acted as a medium for people to know stuff about him, to know things and to live within. And it was rational because God was rational. So this picture of of God's world that Newton began to paint was a knowable, orderly, and rational universe that we could employ the faculties of reason to discern and understand. But by the time we get to the 17th century, a belief in the necessity of reason to understanding the universe, to understanding even God, to understanding humanity turned into a belief in the sufficiency of reason. And here's a little bit of how someone could actually kind of philosophically and theologically get there. And it, it, it's not completely absurd, though you might want to dismiss it as such, especially if you're coming from a Christian perspective. Let's take Newton's notion of an orderly, rational God. And we can take even some of the classical definitions of God from classical theism, right? That he's omniscient, that he's perfect, that he's impassable. All of these classic attributes or or adjectives assigned to who God is. If God is perfectly intelligent, 
if he is uh, all-knowing, right? If he is a perfect creator, then hasn't he created a creation like a machine, like a machine that runs perfectly as he intended it to? If God is so smart, if God is so intelligent, then he wouldn't need to interfere or step in or fix anything with his creation. If God is the the clockmaker or the machine maker and the universe is the machine, then if God is perfect in his knowledge and his intelligence, then wouldn't it logically follow that creation is functioning just as it should be? And if it's functioning just as it should be, if God is intelligent and he created it and he set it to run, then he no longer needs to step in or interfere in the activities of creation. And this creates a massive problem for the Christian story because then what we're left with is, you know, in a certain sense, the Christian story is a story about how though God created creation as good, it is there was ultimately a moment in which flaws and brokenness entered into creation. And then ultimately, like the the pinnacle of the Christian story is how God himself steps into creation in the incarnate Christ to redeem and restore it and to, you know, through his church, through his people, uh, to continue this process of restoration all the way till we get to the end of the age or the eschaton. But for thinkers in the 18th century, this is this is really a theodicy problem. You know, the problem of evil still rears its ugly head. And um, you have, you're still left with this problem of how a supremely intelligent, perfect God would create a machine that has any flaws to it. He would create anything that would have any flaws that he would need to come fix. Seems like it's a, a reflection on his character. So um, either then God does not exist, or if he exists, he's either not good or he is not supremely intelligent. There might be some flaw in God. So this new perspective emerged during the 17th and into the 18th century that we call deism. And the, the deists believed that uh, God was perfect, that he was omniscient, that he was all of these attributes from classical theism, but that he was a giant clockmaker who set the clock, who created this orderly universe where the laws of cause and effect are always working, and he left it and, um, you know, set it to run by itself. And again, right, like Christian's initial response to this is, oh boy, that that God seems distant. He doesn't seem involved in the lives of humans. And that, that I don't like that thought. But you have to understand from their perspective, there's it, it seems almost irrational that that God would need to do anything in his creation if he is perfect. Now, these deists, they, they weren't necessarily a long-lived group, and they never really had any sort of organized creedal statement or, you know, a deist church. But, it, you know, deism was a huge, just a massive influence on many of our founding fathers. Uh, in the short period in which deism was in its heyday, just so happened to also be the, the time of the American Revolution and the 
foundational years of the United States government. So, you know, deism had, was short-lived, but there were some pretty important people who were deists during this time. But it certainly wasn't a unified school of thought. You know, you had some deists that believed in some way, shape, or form that Christ was divine, or other deists that thought, well, you know, something like the Sermon on the Mount was simply, you know, the perfection of natural law. And um, you know, we should probably say something about this this term natural law that I threw out. If we go back to Aquinas, natural law is the laws that humans can discern through the process of reason and general revelation, by which uh, we could say these are you know sort of universal, universal truths that should be discernible to all reasonable people. So while some deists thought somebody like Jesus was a teacher of natural law, others tried to hold on to some sort of sense in which he was divine. It certainly wasn't a unified school of thought, and it, it didn't really last that long. And there's still deists today. There, you know, there's functional deists, but deism as a you know philosophical school of thought isn't that popular because all the holes in it and the problems with it eventually gave way to naturalism. Now, as a, a logical consequence of this deist view of the universe. The universe is closed. So, you know, for the deist, because God was perfect and he would have made creation to operate just as he intended to, there's no outside reordering of it. The initial cause sets about the forward motion of events that happens exactly as God has intended to. So, you know, uh, a picture that I sometimes have used in the past to hopefully help people understand this was that picture creation essentially is God laying out a, a massive, near infinite series of dominoes. Not not the pizza, right? But the the you know the dominoes a board game. I don't know what do you call dominoes. It's a game, right? So he lays out a near infinite series of of dominoes, and knowing that when he presses the first one, it uh, will start like not to mix metaphors here, but an, an ignition process. You know, it, it ignites the series of dominoes to fall in the prescribed order that God has designed it to. We've talked about this problem with naturalism, but obviously if the dominoes have been laid out in advance, right? The blueprint has been written in and God acts as the one to be the first cause, right? Which was a, a popular term for God among deists, God as the first cause or prime mover. As he presses that first domino down, now it just is going to work just as he intended it to work. But you can you can already see, as we've talked about with naturalism before, some of the, the problems with that. If the universe is closed, if it's impossible to be reordered, and everything is happening as it should happen, well, then we, we don't have free will. Free will doesn't exist. And if free will doesn't exist, we also don't even have the possibility to know things with any certainty because we are fated to our observations about reality. Boy, so you, you, you want to talk about the beginning of a meaning crisis for people? This is the beginning of it. You eliminate the possibility of free will. 
you eliminate the possibility for people to believe that their choices actually matter, that they can affect the outcome of the future in their life and in the life of other people. You strip them of that intellectually and they're going to experience some major, a major meaning crisis. And it's also going to be quite confusing because there seems to be something innately wired into humans that leads them to believe that their choices actually do matter, that they can affect change. And like our existential experience of that is if I if I do this instead of doing this, I, I can see how my choice would bring about different consequences or results. So while deism is really popular for a short window because of so many of the problems with it. Um, it natural theology is still a really uh, popular practice in, in seminaries in even into the 18th century. Um, natural theology has become far less popular in recent times and we'll, we'll kind of explain why here. One of the major factors for this shift in um, you know, people moving from historical Christian theism to deism into naturalism was because of uh, Charles Darwin. And let me just say, if you haven't listened to previous podcasts, go back and listen to, at some point, uh, the, the series I did on science and theology. So I, I hope that you understand when I'm talking about this, that I am not like anti-Darwin. Uh, I don't think, you know evolutionary theory and the scientists that hold it, the vast majority of, of scientists are involved in some sort of global conspiracy. I, you know, I, that is not, that's not my perspective, but we have to um, confess a little bit about the ramifications of, of Darwin's theory and the language that he used surrounding his theory and the impact that this had on Western thought. You know, Darwin's language was um, not a neutral observation about the mechanical and biological processes by which life seems to have come about or the diversity of life seems to have come about on this planet. It wasn't neutral language. He used language such as survival of the fittest and natural selection for Darwin, the Darwinian theory really highlighted the the bloody nature of nature, <laughs> the the nastiness of survival mechanisms in in um, animals throughout evolutionary history, and how the nastiness of those survival instincts has been a necessary feature in order for them to survive. That nature is violent, and again, it's a survival of the fittest. This pushed a lot of people to the brink with the problem of evil and suffering, because if the clockmaker god made creation to work like this, what kind of God makes creation to work? And for all the diversity and even how we get to have homo sapiens and modern humans at all, if that has been through such a horrifically violent and cutthroat process, boy, is the God, even the deist God, 
good or necessary. See, the problem of evil that the language of Darwinian theory brings up pushes it to a breaking point for many people. You know, up until this time, you know, natural theology throughout much of the 18th century had uh, focused on, you know, a, a healthy equilibrium that happened in the planet. That, yes, yeah, certainly there was uh, predation and there was some, what we might say, violent things in creation, but it's all part of a balance and equilibrium. And uh, but but Darwin's language really focused on on the violence evidenced in the natural world, and for many people, that violence they couldn't square it with a picture of an intelligent or loving creator of any kind. So as we move into the 18th, you know, latter half of the 18th, um, or I should say into the 19th century, I, I should say, as Darwin was writing in the, you know, the 1800s and the 19th century, as we move into the latter half of the 19th century into the 20th century, it seems to become harder and harder to believe in any sort of good, rational, uh, intelligent creator if the way in which creation works is so oftentimes horrific. Now, you couple that, this shift that's happening in the sciences and philosophy and theology, you couple that with a couple of world wars. <laughs> you couple that with not only a couple of world wars, a Great Depression in the Western world, and the problem of evil becomes almost insurmountable for many people. If the Trinitarian incarnational God of the Christian story becomes irrational to the deist, the deist clockmaker God becomes irrational and unnecessary to a new school of thought, which simply becomes known as naturalism. Yes, the universe does seem to function under some sort of rational principle that allows us to make these observations. And now, you know, we, we don't really know why it works, but what we've eliminated is the possibility of there being any sort of good or intelligent God, any sort of intentional, loving, personal, ultimate reality behind it all. And guys, we, we just have to confess that even if you are you know, hardcore Christian apologist, that these, these are legitimate questions. And so, you know, going back to the beginning of the podcast where we, you know, laid out two different people, you know, these are questions that people in our churches, and again, I'm a, I'm a pastor in a small local church here in Minneapolis, I'm on staff at, and we have to understand and, and readily confess that these questions are still, these are questions that people in our congregations, if you go to a, you know, a Christian university on your campus, these are, these are questions people are still wrestling with. They are beset, even as believers, by doubt. So we can't rush, rush to dismiss them or to just give simple platitudes and expect people to just move on with their lives. No, these are... These are real questions that honest people have wrestled with, and we need to be able to see how they've actually come to a different conclusion than us on this on this subject. That it's not it's not insane 
for someone to become agnostic. I, I think it's good that we just confess that and that we actually come face to face with that. We don't pull our head over the covers and go, no, those questions are not good questions. No, I think we can confess that they're good questions. All right, so as I've talked about in the uh, six biggest meaning-making questions videos that I've done recently, and again, if you've just been like an audio-only subscriber, you can check those out on YouTube. They're just short, you know, pretty lighthearted, uh, fun introductions. This, you know, theology and philosophy doesn't always have to be so solemn. Um, you can check those out. But, you know, initially, very early on, it seemed like, you know, early on in this process, now we're into the, the 20th century, end of the 19th century, into the 20th century. Uh, and the, the first two meaning-making questions, the answers have shifted, right? So we've shifted in Western civilization, especially in academia and the ivory towers and the places, honestly, the places that are doing the educating of the masses, that the answers have shifted from question one, which is what is ultimate reality? The answers shift, shifted from God right? So the Trinitarian incarnational God to the deist clock mover God to now um, the universe itself is ultimate reality, you know, matter and nothing more. It's all that we can, only, only things that we can discern via reason are, are what is real. And then question two shifts from this picture of even Newton's picture of an orderly, rational universe uh, created by a God that is spirit, but, uh, you know, reality is comprised of spirit and matter, to now a universe that is chaotic, it's autonomous, but it's not thinking. There's no mind behind the matter. There is uh, some sort of discernible pattern that we can, you know, use science and we discern in physics, there's perhaps a degree of rationality, but it, it, that's simply by chance. It's this weird statistical anomaly that we don't have an explanation for. But this accidental universe is random, and it's chaotic, and it's matter, and nothing more, and it's closed. It's closed. There is no outside transcendence. What philosophers in the 20th century begin to pick up on, though, is how... These new answers to the questions, questions one and two, how these new answers have now radically affected question three, what does it mean to be a human? And the answers that people now have, or I guess what we could say don't have. And this is really where we see the rise of, you know, the atheistic existentialism, people like Sartre and Camus, who are trying to come face to face with how do we actually give meaning and purpose to individuals in this purposeless universe and that's that's their project that they're they're trying to figure this out because uh, you know it's like people answered the first two questions without any sort of sense of how this could affect people's understanding of their own individual purpose of humanity's purpose in the world and again, you, you combine that with the two worst wars humanity had ever seen, and people start to become nihilistic. It's like, you know, philosophically, the, the picture of reality that it is random, chaotic, no inherent meaning or purpose. And oh, by the way, you don't have free will. 
nor can you have any certainty as to whether or not your observations about reality have any sort of accordance with reality as it actually is. You take that combined with things like the Great Depression or you've just lost your husband in a war, a war that perhaps you're not even certain about why we're fighting in, or you've just lived through the Holocaust, or you have seen the horrific fallout of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. All of this is quite the cocktail for a meaning crisis, a full-on meaning crisis that, that really doesn't start to hit Western civilization till we get into the post-World War II, the post-war years. So in a short period of time, that, that gives you at least a brief survey of some of the movements in Western thought that have led us to this meaning crisis. Obviously, it's not comprehensive. We can write PhD dissertations on this subject, on even just one of the many causations. This doesn't cover it all, but it hopefully gives you some insight into some of the major uh, philosophical, theological, and worldview shifts that happened over the last few centuries, which again brought us to this point we are now at where we're in a full-on meaning crisis in Western civilization. In the next episode, what we'll do is we'll take some time to explore, now that we're here, we'll explore what religious experience and meaning-making experience looks like for people in Western thought. And we'll, we'll try to answer and pursue an answer to the question, are people actually less religious now than they were 500 years ago? Or has the secular world just shifted what religion looks like. Hey guys, I am so thankful for all of you that listen and I, I really hope that you would reach out, whether it's on Twitter or in the comment section of this on YouTube or iTunes or Podbean or wherever you're listening to this, uh, get a hold of me because the goal of this is to not just have you guys absorb information, but it's for us to have dialogue together. And I, I, I hope that you feel comfortable doing that. I'd love to hear from you. Another great way that you can connect with me is through the Patreon page that I launched a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, launched a Patreon page. For those you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a, it's a a website that allows you to support content creators and artists who are uh, doing work that perhaps other people see as valuable and there's a way to express that they think the work is valuable through making contributions and there are tiered rewards for various contribution levels you can check that out on my my patreon page i would love to get to you know the goal right now is to get to 300 supporters and when we do that we'll be able to take this podcast and the video stuff to the next level but there's also some you know potentially enticing rewards for those of you that would do maybe uh, you know the initial tier is like a two dollar tier of support but you jump up to seven bucks and what i'd love to do is to start doing some like q a uh, sessions some q a podcast sessions for those that are a little bit you know maybe more serious about exploring the stuff and they've got they've got questions we could do some q a uh, episodes and there's some other fun 
frontiers out there. So you can check that out on Patreon. And boy, guys, it would mean the world to me. If this is helpful for you, there's a pretty good chance that it might be helpful for other people. So I would love to encourage you. I, I am encouraging you. Not that I'd love to. I am encouraging you. You know, share share when an episode connects with you. If there's something in it, share it with somebody else. You know, this is how hey, we don't do advertising. Uh, I don't pay to do advertising or you know pay per click stuff on Instagram or anything like that. You know, so uh, the only way someone else is going to find out about this is if you share it with them. So if you find it valuable, there's a good chance someone else might find these discussions valuable too. And in the weeks ahead, I'm really excited. We've got some interviews coming up. Oh, I, we've got, I don't know if I want to announce it quite yet who it is, but we've got a, a, New, York Time, a New York Times bestselling author, theologian, is going to be uh, joining me in a couple of weeks here recording a podcast with him. Oh, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear the, the conversation that I, I think is going to be immensely profitable. So thanks again for tuning in. I uh, appreciate your support. Again, you can become a Patreon supporter, but ultimately uh, I'd love even just to have you like or subscribe. And that that helps this podcast also move to the, the top of lists as people are searching for these subjects and they go, oh, you know, this is, this is a podcast that other people are really connecting with. So all of that stuff is great. It's good. It's cool. Uh, thankful for you guys and um, stay tuned. We've got more stuff coming in the weeks ahead. Oh.